0: Welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. Seth Klein is an author and climate activist. His book, A Good War, looks at Second World War strategies and shows how they could be repurposed today for the rapid transition to meet climate change head-on.
1: Okay, I am Seth Klein. I'm the... Uh... Team lead with the Climate Emergency Unit. I spent 22 years with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, and then uh, wrote a book called The Good War: Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency."
0: Welcome to Northern Latitude, Seth.
1: Good to be with you.
0: First thing out the gate is our new Net Zero Emission Accountability Act. What did you think of it when you when it was announced?
1: Uh, well, we were all waiting for it. Uh, this is this is. Uh, the most detailed climate plan we've had to date, and it's it's now required in legislation. You may remember back in before the election, uh, the government passed this new Net Zero Accountability Act, and it requires that the government table a plan uh, to meet its 2030 target. So it's the most detailed plan that we've had. I would say it's uh, starting to get there. Um but it is not yet at speed and scale. Um, you know, when I, when I stand back and look at it, uh, you know, there was some big funding an- announcements. These things always come with big sounding funding announcements. So this was $9 billion, but of course it's spread over many years. Um, and when you actually look at how much we're spending uh, on climate writ large, it's nowhere close to what we need to be spending. Uh, and, and not by, you know, it's not like we're a few billion off, we're off by a, an order of magnitude. And it makes for an interesting contrast with, uh, well, just to give you one example, we, we, the last week has seen $9 billion on, uh, on climate uh, announced and $19 billion on new fighter plates. Um, and yet this is, in fact, the real security threat. Um, And overall my take is that with this federal government they are moving on climate more than previous federal governments. Um, We are gonna finally start to see a bending of the curve on our greenhouse gas emissions but not at the pitch that's that the science requires. And the government is still trying to they're in a mode of trying to incentivize their way to victory. So the centerpiece remains carbon pricing so we said we send price signals. We give rebates. We give tax incentives. We encourage, um, but uh, uh, but we're not going to we're not going to win that way. Uh, and the regulatory measures are still too weak and too far
0: out. And your book, your book's called a good war, and it's about mobilizing an action by Canadians and our government and all levels in a in a similar footing to the Second World War. And unfortunately for us and the planet, we've got a real war going on right now. And we've had a two year biological war with a with a disease none of us were expecting. How, are there lessons there or how has that affected things when oh, it comes to a government? All
1: of the, there are parallels and similarities and differences across all of these emergencies. Uh, so as, as you say, uh the premise of my book it's on mobilizing canada for the climate emergency but it's all structured around lessons from the second world war another time we faced an existential emergency threat and mobilized across society across class and race and gender and politics to do what we had to do um i I wrote the whole book before the pandemic uh it came out in the pandemic and as you note We've spent the last two years confronting another emergency, and now we have you know the invasion of Ukraine and the response to that. With all of these things, they all have me trying to delve into what is you know what's what's that secret sauce, what's that alchemy between uh, 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 events and leadership that galvanize us and move us into emergency mode and what's so striking about the war and the pandemic and the response to the invasion of Ukraine, is all of a sudden, we see speed and scale. These things that we were told were impossible, all of a sudden, you know, we're seizing the assets of the oligarchs, we're banning imports, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're working with our allies, we're, we're spending money we didn't think we had. Um, uh, and the perplexing thing is, why is it that we are able to pivot in this way in the face of some emergencies and not others?
0: is it because there's just not the public in general, there seems to be support. If you do a poll,
1: correct Mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong. Correct.
0: But then when it comes to actual pushing our leaders and pushing our politicians to actually do something, it's a minority of people making that noise.
1: Well, I'd say it's, it's complicated. Um, so first of all, the curse of climate, compared to these other things is that it moves in slower motion, and that allows for our politics to kind of kick the can down, down the road. It's also the case that while climate produces um, e- major events, and that's what these extreme weather events have been, they don't happen everywhere at the same time in the same place. Right. And so that fails to galvanize us all together, all at once. Right. Two years ago, we'll we'll hear about flooding in Quebec. But those of us out here in the West, you know, it's just another news item. And then last year we experienced this incredible heat dome event and fires. But the rest of Canada, they're just watching it on the news. Um, So it doesn't galvanize us in quite the same way. Um, And then climate is also cursed by the fact that there are some very nefarious elements doing everything in their power to block progress particularly from the fossil fuel industry um, uh, in very insidious ways. Um, so all of these things conspire to prevent us and prevent our, and, and our leaders from acting. You also mentioned the polls. So I've commissioned polls on climate, and you are correct. that in, in a poll, people say they want action. They say they're concerned. In some ways, I would say what I see in the polls is a public that's ahead of our politics in terms of understanding the emergency and their preparedness to embrace bold change. But the polls also reveal a troubling lack of literacy, if you will, on climate. Um, In particular, only about half of the public correctly understand the main source of global warming to be the combusting of fossil fuels. Now, in in the context of that lack of literacy, if you're a politician, you can make a lot of mischief because and and if you poll people, you'll say, well, are you worried about climate? Yes, I am. Do you think government should be doing more? Yes, I do. Well, what do you think they should be doing? And they go right to plastics and recycling, because that's what we've been, you know, had hit us over the head for the last two decades instead of the actual source of global warming.
0: The denialism that gets pushed on people. Obviously, a lot of that comes from the oil industry. How does the corporate world guide that that messaging?
1: Well, it's been shifting over time. So so first of all, when you say denialism, I actually distinguish between two kinds. Um, There's the traditional climate denialism, which is just to deny the reality of human-induced... Uh, climate change and the science. Now, the good news is, those who hold those views are a diminishing rump of public opinion. It's probably around 7%. I don't actually think that's our main problem. Our main problem is what I call the new climate denialism. And this is what I think is actually practiced by most of our politics across the political spectrum, and by industry, which is to say, you, you accept and understand the reality, the science, of human induced climate change. But then you continue to practice a policy agenda that does not align with the urgency of what that science says we have to do. That is. In essence, our times, right? Where a government like the one we have now will pass a climate emergency motion in the House of Commons one day, as they did a couple summers ago, and then reapprove the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion the very next day. Um, And it's not just the Liberals, it's the NDP in, in my home province of British Columbia which will at one and the same time say we have the most uh, ambitious climate plan in the country, which they arguably do, and yet still double down on fracking and, and, and pursuing liquefied natural gas. So that is the awkward period in which we live, in which our politics is sort of stuck in what I call the new climate denialism.
0: So in your book, you, we need a, you call for a fall of France moment, which is obvious if you're a historian when it comes to World War II, And obviously, we haven't quite had that yet. What do you think it takes?
1: Well, or what I would qualify that slightly. It's what I said earlier. We've had it, but not all together at the same time. So, look, last June in my province of British Columbia, we had this heat dome event. And in a single week, almost 600 people died. It was the most deadly weather event in Canadian history. As many died in that week as about twenty five percent of the total in this province from COVID.
0: But having, gonna, sa- having said that, Seth,
1: yeah.
0: that's not how people perceive that. How do you bridge those regional differences, or how yeah. do you get? How do that's you get the that? dilemma.
1: That is the dilemma. So I would say that experience fundamentally shifts shifted the zeitgeist in British Columbia. The year we had the combination of the heat dome and the fires and then the flooding in November from these atmospheric rivers changed the terrain in this province. But as you say, uh, other provinces is just another item on the news. Um, and so here's what I think. I think these events are going to continue. Um, these are the attacks on our soil, to put this in in war terms. Um, And there will come a time when the, when these events galvanize our politics into genuine emergency mode, that's going to happen. The only question is, will it happen in time? And that is the, that is the ambiguous time in which we live.
0: And an interesting, there was a, there was a line in your book and you mentioned that we have a serious shortage of poets. Mm -hmm. Uh, What, what did you mean?
1: Well, Throughout the book, I'm interested in the question of how how you how you rally a population. And uh, in one one of the chapters, I particularly am interested in the role of arts and culture and the role of the news media and the role of political leaders. Um, they all and other cultural institutions, faith leaders, I mean, labor leaders, they all have a, a role to play with their own constituencies. But but at one point, you know. It's funny. I w- as I was writing and digging into this history. You know, one day it just sort of dawned on me. Oh, you know, like World War II had a popular soundtrack, uh, and as di- you know, what's interesting about the arts in World War II, as as horrific as the war was, the arts tended to be uh, uh, rallying us. You know, uh, whereas to the extent that the arts are are starting to produce climate content. It's mostly apocalyptic, yes. uh, which is important too. I I don't think we should be Pollyanna about this stuff, but we have not yet got the same kind of rallying spirit. And, uh, you know, you asked about poets. Here's the thing, look, I I spent 22 years writing policy reports uh, at the CCPA. Now, don't get me wrong, I think they were pretty good, but they weren't exactly gripping writing. Um, And uh, this is the first time I've written a book. And a book is different than a policy report. A book has narrative and story. And it tries to touch your head as well as your heart as well as your head. And um, the fun thing about landing on this framework of the war is that um, so many Canadians still have this connection to this 80-year-old story. You know, maybe it's a family connection or an institutional connection. And um, as I've been out in the world with the book and giving talks, I've given a lot of them about 130 with different audiences um, and with political leaders, you get to make a different kind of connection, not just to their head about policy, you know, wonky stuff, but actually look, I get to say, look at these people you so admired who did something so spectacular that's important to your sense of purpose and legacy. Um, well, here we are again.
0: Yeah, and it was a very patriotic time, right? Like it was, you know, as we were a younger country and we were just coming into our own, so that was part of it. How do you even start down the path of getting people to understand and believe that this is our rallying moment? I thought it would, I really thought it would happen with COVID. I really did. Yeah. And
1: interestingly, I would say it did happen in the early months with COVID. There was a kind of sense of collective purpose. And then, and then it was lost, in, in the, particularly in the second year, that, that, um, that feeling that we were all in it together. But in those early months, it felt like we did, you know, when we used to go out at seven o'clock and bang pots and pans with our neighbors. And so that you're raising a few interesting points here, Bill. So first of all, one of the things that intrigued me as I dug into the World War II research was, like a lot of people, I assumed, as you just said a moment ago, that it was a different time and we were more united and everyone was ready to rally. And it turns out that's not true. Right. <laughs> you know, people did, were not anxious to do this. And we were quite divided. We were divided regionally. We were divided by class. In fact, on those class terms, Interestingly, you know, often people have said to me, oh, well, we were more cohesive back then. No, we weren't. Um, In fact, if you look at inequality in Canada, measured as the share of income going to the wealthiest 1%, and you look back over the last 100 years, the maximum point of inequality was 1938, the year before the war. We did not go into the war cohesive and united. That social solidarity was forged in the doing. But, but part of how it was forged was that the, the King government really understood that if you were actually going to mobilize everybody and get the enlistment numbers that they wanted to get, yet people had to feel that social solidarity. They truly had to feel like everyone was doing their part. We were all in it together. And so they did things to ensure that. They brought in Canada's first major income transfer programs. Unemployment insurance comes into the war. Uh, The family allowance comes in the war. Taxes were increased on the wealthy and corporations during the war. We had an excess profits tax in the war that was structured in a way that the kind of profiteering that we've seen in this pandemic was illegal in the Second World War. It's too bad in the pandemic we didn't learn more lessons from the war around how you sustain that feeling that we are, in fact, all in this together. But the same lesson holds now for climate and this is my fear, if we bring in climate policies without just transition policies, without policies that tackle inequality, without a wealth tax, without uh, windfall profits taxes, that a lot of people will feel they're being abandoned and that this is some elite project and we will fail to secure the social solidarity that we need when we are asking people to engage in a grand undertaking together.
0: What do you mean by just transition policies?
1: I mean policies uh, specifically for those whose current employment is tied to the fossil fuel sector. There are about 300,000 Canadians whose employment is tied to the fossil fuel industry. That's a lot of people. Uh, and we have to make a compelling and hopeful offer to those people. And we can. And we, we not only should, but we can. And here too, I I I pull some inspiration from the war story. Uh, As as many as 300,000 people are, consider this, uh, Bill. Uh, In the Second World War we were a population of about 11 million Canadians. Over a million of those people enlisted. Over a million of those people were directly employed in military production. They all had to be recruited and trained up and six years later they all had to be reintegrated into a peacetime economy. And we did that with audacious income support programs and housing support programs and post-secondary programs that transformed the post-secondary sector in Canada and changed the lives of thousands of people. If we could do that, then I'm convinced we can do it again. And in fact, the task today is not as hard.
0: It's a mitigation adaptation kind of thing. You strike me as an optimist about this.
1: Well you know, it's a fraught term. Yes. Uh, I am trying I am trying in the book and in the, the work that I do to share this story as a reminder that we are capable of speed and scale when we set our mind to it. but I am I am not at all sure that we will gather this lesson in time. Um, and with each new climate plan, I, I get depressed. And the reality is anyone who follows the climate science, as I tried to do, walks a razor's edge between hope and despair. You cannot help but uh, waffle between the two. And all I can do, you know, I, I, I try to pull, a, again, a bit of solace from that World War II story. I said a moment ago, a million Canadians enlisted. You know what they didn't know? Is if they would win, um, you know, we, it, it sort of states the obvious, but we, for, but because we know how the story ended, but they didn't, and for a few years the outcome was far from a far foregone conclusion, and they did it anyway, and and they surprised themselves uh, in the process by what they were capable of accomplishing, both in on the battlefront and the home front, and I'm just trying to figure out how to kind of build that kind of spirit again but also trying to be forthright that i don't know that we're going to do this in time thanks thanks bill
0: that's it for episode eight thanks to producer sarah simpson and social media director alina simpson for their help this week our theme music and sound logo are by titan sound john sanfilippo make sure to tell a friend about the podcast and send them over to the podcast page at northernlatitudes.ca I'm Bill Ault. Find your way to Northern Latitudes.